invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our text will be verses 13 to 16 this evening. The title of the message is Two Contrasting Responses to the Gospel Message. And that last song that we just sung, Ancient Words, Changing Me and Changing You, that's one of the responses. is an effectual response, a transforming response. And as we'll see, there's also the response that Paul gives in verses 15 and 16 of a hardening and a rejection of that glorious gospel message. So Paul here sets these two responses to the gospel side by side. One of a glad reception of the gospel message, and then one of a rejection of the gospel message. The reception is one that not only is received and believed upon, faith is placed in in the object of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's a growing in grace. There's a sanctification process that takes place. There's a willingness to suffer for the gospel. And that's proof of the discipleship of these Thessalonian believers. But also, there's this rejection, a hating of the message, a wanting to push it aside, uh, uh, to hinder its advancement any way that can be done, and then to be those that would persecute those who believe that message. So Paul here sets forth this big contrast between the Jews, who had so much privilege, They were loaded with privilege, and we're going to look at that a little bit tonight, and yet they reject the glorious gospel. And then these Gentile believers, most of them at least, the Thessalonians, who received the word quickly, they received it savingly, and it transformed them. It completely changed them. Commentators sometimes make a a big deal about this. Uh, they, They claim this is a major interpretive challenge that Verses 13 to 16 don't seem to fit perfectly here. If you were here last week, you heard verses 1 to 12 um, opened up and you're hearing. And then if you look at verse 12, we're not going to do this now. And then verse 13, you see it doesn't completely fit. I can understand the concern. But it appears to me that Paul is really doing two things here. He's really continuing to do what he did in verses 1 to 12. And what was that? To defend his credentials as an apostle, to defend the gospel message itself, that it is God's message. We're going to review that in just a moment. So he's continuing to um, demonstrate his credentials by what? The success of his ministry. The transformed lives of these Thessalonian believers will be further evidence, if you will, that he's giving in in his defense. And also it appears that he's picking back up that theme that we saw in verse 2 of chapter 1, where he's giving thanks. He's giving thanks for their election, and he's giving thanks for all these evidences that God has indeed transformed and worked in them, and that the gospel had come in mighty power. Last time we saw three main thoughts, that our boldness and our witness comes from, uh, that it's God's message that we take. It's the glorious gospel. It's God's message. We'll be flipping the Revelation back to Thessalonians if we don't get that fan off there. So uh, now we can stay in Thessalonians too. 
So we saw that boldness comes from the, that it's God's message. Boldness and witness comes from pure motives that Paul had. That was part of his defense that we saw in verses 3 to 6. And then also in sincere love for the brethren. And that's verses 7 to 12. So his personal credibility was being questioned. Uh, they said that his message was full of error. It was lacking substance. It wasn't really the gospel. And is that his motives were impure and deceitful. And so Paul here calls not only the Thessalonians as witnesses two times in that section, verses 1 to 12, but also he calls God as witness two times in that section. And it's the hucksters and the, clar- the, the, the charlatans that are going around that use the guile and use the deception and, and do whatever they can to gain an audience and to deceive. And Paul says in verse 4 that he had been approved by God. That word that approved after much testing and found to be choice and found to be God's chosen instrument. He gave those two parental illustrations, verses 7 and 8, that he was gentle among them as a nursing mother tenderly cares for his children. In verse 11, where he says that he did not, for you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, even as a father would his own children. So he was tender. He was gentle. And ultimately, what was Paul's motive? It was the glory of God that came forth very clear. So now here we are in verses 13 to 16. Again, the title of the message, Two Contrasting Responses to the Gospel Message. Follow along as I read. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they are always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. The passage breaks down very nicely. Uh, so we have two points tonight, verses 14 and 15 in the first point, 15, and then 15 and 16 in the second point. So first of all, the Thessalonians were changed as they had received and accepted the word of God as that. Paul begins with this word, for, for this reason. Uh, some of your Bibles say he resumes this posture of thanksgiving that as he's reflecting on them. In verse 12, so that you, he lists his credentials, he says he exhorted them so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. What is that manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory? So Paul is again reminded that it's God who's done this wonderful work of transformation in these young believers. And so he says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God for you. For when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. And so this word received here, very interesting word. It, it, it means to, to, 
to receive something transmitted to, to receive some type of teaching. It's the same word that's used of receiving some type of tradition that has been passed on. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul's setting forth the gospel and he says, this gospel which I preach, which you received, you received it from God. You received it as though it was from God. It was the gospel that I preached, but you received it. It's the same word that occurs in um, our communion passage in um, 1 Corinthians 11 where he talks about the Lord's Supper for what I received from the Lord, this I give to you. Also, speaking of the Gospel in Galatians 1, uh, Paul, again writing, For I neither received it from men, speaking of the Gospel, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, what they received was the Word of God. They received it as the very words of God coming to them. So superior to the, the, the human wisdom that was prevalent in that day because of the location of the city, all these philosophers and false teachers would pass through moving from one town to the next because it was a hub. And so all these people are coming through. But this is so far superior to all that human wisdom that they received it as coming from God. Says which you heard from us. That's the idea of, of an obedient hearing and responding. Paul connects the idea of hearing here to with faith, just like the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews four two. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So there's a. There's something with the idea of a hearing, a hearing and having it united with faith that it, that it um, prospers. And that's what happened here with this young church. They received the word of God and they heard it proclaimed from the apostles and they believed it. It goes on and says that they accepted it as the word of God. You might think of the, the receiving as the external receiving. This is the internal receiving. It's the internal welcoming of the message. Of course, this is the work of God. This is not something we can muster up. It's a hearing in the ears, an understanding and a processing in the mind, and then a, a finding a being resident in the heart and changing one's disposition. And again, two times in this one verse, Paul insists that what the Thessalonians heard was the Word of God. Two times in this one verse. And of course, this is what gives us boldness. Last week we saw this. This is what, what gave Paul boldness in his witnesses. This isn't just something that, that he has come up with, but this is the very Word of God. And that, that so he can go forth with boldness and with authority, expecting results because God is going to bless his gospel. He could preach with conviction. The message was not some kind of cleverly devised tale, but that it really was the Word of God and would affect change. Those who simply preach little moral essays, it goes nowhere. <laughs> you need the Word of God. And furthermore, it says, look in the text here, verse 13, you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. It's performing some type of work. What is this work? It's the Word of God that is performing something 
on the inside. Now, this must be understood passively. It is God who does the work. We know that, right? But think of it from the first hearing. Think of your own testimony from the first hearing of the gospel. When that conviction of sin began to come, when your eyes began to be opened and the scales began to fall away, that is the Word of God performing its work in each one of you. And I trust you look back on that day with much affection, but also the conversion process, that sanctification process, that growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is performing that work in us even now, still. Writer of the Hebrews, chapter 4, again, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So Paul compares the Word of God here, not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. The false teachers in Thessalonica, and just like many in our day, right, promote human wisdom. We heard some of that this morning in the various views of creation and the various scientists, and how they explain away the clear teaching of the Word of God. But human wisdom can never accomplish what men really need. They need to hear about a Savior that can rescue, that can redeem, that can transform. 1 Corinthians 1, we were, I was going to read that, 18 to 25, I'll just uh, quote verse 18, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is folly, it is foolishness, it makes no sense whatsoever because God has not done that work on the inside. So we see that the Thessalonian believers were transformed in verse 13 and then in verse 14, the Thessalonian church became imitators of the churches. It says here, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea taking the first half of that. Again, he says four. Now here comes the evidence that God is working in these converts. He's going to set forth really two evidences. First of all, that they became imitators of what a sound church should look like. They became imitators of the churches. Now this is the same word that we saw in chapter 1 and verse 6 where it said, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. It's the same word. It's the idea to mimic. That's the idea of an imitator. And just like in chapter 1 and verse 6, the imitation is linked to suffering. Look in verse 1-6 again. Became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. And then here in our passage, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. The idea of becoming an imitator is being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Being willing to to endure suffering. How could they endure this suffering? It's because of this powerful result of the Word of God. Working on the inside. Transforming. Giving a new disposition. A new view on life. A new world view, if you will. That's how they and us can endure suffering. Second Corinthians 5, you're a new creature in Christ if you've trusted Him for salvation. So when he says here, you became imitators of the churches of Christ Jesus that are in 
Judea. Now, when did they visit those churches? They didn't. <laughs> they didn't, right? And the idea is that they, it was the same pattern of, of from the whole region of, of Pentecost, the whole pattern of how the churches were persecuted. Chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5 of Acts, chapter 7, 10, and 13, and on. It's the idea that, that, that the early church had this perception that persecution was inevitable, that it was going to happen, and to expect it if you're a true child of God. So Paul's thankful for them because they received the word of God as it was the word as as, as the word of God, and that, be, that because they became imitators. And now the third reason that Paul's so thankful is because they persevered through intense suffering. Look at the end of verse 14. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Now. Paul's probably thinking back of Acts chapter 17. We looked at that in some detail when we introduced the book. Do you remember? That's when the church was founded. That's when Paul, Silas, Paul and Silas and, and Timothy were there and the church was founded. And it, just to read verse 5 again. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, that is their own countrymen, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason, and they were seeking to bring them out to the people. The suffering came to them, not only from the Jews, but also their own countrymen, as they endured the suffering, and yet they did not waver. And isn't it true? Just consider, Christians, those who have professed faith, since you have come to Christ, and think of those who have fallen away because things got difficult, because sufferings came. Think of the parable of the sower, right? Our Lord gives those, those four soils, the one that's the shallow ground here. He springs up immediately with joy, having received the word. But when the sun arises and the persecution comes down upon him, what happens? He withers away because he had no deep root in himself. Think of Hurricane Katrina, a little over a year ago that, that wiped out that, that Gulf, the Gulf states there. Thousands upon thousands of trees laid down, right? But there were some trees still standing. And it was which ones? The ones that had obviously very deep roots, very strong. And so too for the true believer. He will be nourished. He will, he will, be, he will have deep roots. And he will sustain the weather and the storms of life that come our way. Think of Pilgrim's Progress, this picture of the uh, shallow ground here. Right at the very beginning there, this pliable sets forth with Christian, right? And they come to the screw of the spawn. And there's difficulty right at the beginning of the journey. And he slips in, and what does he say? Is this the paradise that you've promised me? And he turns around and he goes. He says, this, this isn't what it was all cracked up to be. And he leaves. Those who truly receive the word they are proven genuine by how they endure trials and inflictions in this life. The difficulties that would come in this life. And the Thessalonian believers, they really trusted in God's word. They would not suffer for a lie, brethren. <laughs> they really believed that this was the gospel message. And they were willing to even suffer for it. So let me ask you, how do you bear up when you're called upon to suffer 
for your faith? How do you endure during those times of persecution that you have? Now, of course, this is the 21st century in the United States of America. Your persecution is very light by comparison. But nonetheless, there's examples that we could cite that, that we endure. How do you bear up? I remind you of what Paul wrote to the Philippians. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted. It's been given. It's been given to you as a gift, not only faith to believe, but also the privilege to suffer for his name. It has been granted to you, and so we should expect it. Moving on, we see that Paul was so thankful for them. They had savingly received the word. They, they were imitating the uh, churches, and it was evidenced by their willingness to suffer. Now, our second point, despite the privileges, their privileges, the Jews rejected the word and Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, Who both killed, that is the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. You see, the mere mention of the Jews, as he talks about their sufferings at the hands of the countrymen, uh, just as the, the other churches at the hands of the Jews, the mere mention of the Jews causes Paul to begin to vent, in this, as it were, a righteous indignation, to begin to talk about what, what some of the strongest language we have from Paul against his own countrymen. So the Jews rejected the word. They killed the Lord Jesus. And their opposition was consistent against the purposes of God. And this is throughout the Old Testament. The Jews were a privileged people. Israel, out of all the nations of the earth, were chosen and called out. From them came the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the prophets that had come. The whole priesthood what was there, which all pointed to Christ. The promised Messiah was to come through them. Would you agree with me that the Jews were incredibly, incredibly privileged? Let me read to you a couple passages from Romans chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's quite a privilege, isn't it? <laughs> to be entrusted with the very oracles of God. Chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Who are the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. What a list of privileges. Whose are the Father, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But Israel continually rejected God's favor upon them with a stiff arm and a stiff neck, as Stephen says. He would reject. They would reject again and again. We don't have time to turn there, but Isaiah 5, I trust some of you know the context there, where, where Isaiah compares Israel to a fruitless vineyard that did not bear fruit. They consistently failed to obey God's law. And then... They even killed the prophets that God would send. 
and many prophets that we have no record of. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, at the very end, verse 37, you know, the writer's running out of space or paper or time or something, and he, he stops, you know, the hall of faith. But what does he say there in uh, verse 37? That, that many were stoned and sawn and, and, and put to death for their faith. Stephen, in his defense in Acts chapter 7, says, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Jesus himself spoke against the Jews often. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. The context here is he is he's already been leading up in chapter 21 with parables against the Pharisees. In 23, he just lets down all the uh, <laughs> lets down all the uh, the softness and pretty much says, tells it as it is. We're just going to look at the end here. <clears throat> I want you to notice how this parallels with what Paul has said just in this one verse. 23 and verse 31. So you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending to you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah to the blood of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar truly I say to you all these things will come upon this generation also and that, that speaks for itself I think Second Chronicles, an interesting verse. You can write it down for later. I'm just going to read it, 36, and beginning in verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there is no remedy. Now when I read verse 16, you'll see how, how it really fits here. Now Paul uses an interesting, uh, back to Thessalonians 2, Paul uses an interesting word order here when he says, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and you can't see it um, in the English but the idea is that it's emphasizing both Lord and Jesus who they killed. The, the one they killed was the Lord of glory. The one whom every knee, every tongue will bow down to. And then also Jesus, his humanity coming out. The one who is fully man and their own countrymen. That's who they killed. The Lord of glory. The promised Messiah. He's emphasizing both in the original. And then they murdered, of course, Messiah himself. And that parable of the landowner, 
chapter 21. I'll just read this. I trust you know the context where our Lord tells this parable of a man who planted a vineyard and uh, put those in charge of it. And in verse 37 it says, But afterwards he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Our Lord is speaking very clearly here against the Pharisees that he had sent servants. He put them as, as the vineyard and the parallel here to Isaiah 5 is very clear and as servants and they, they continually uh, killed them and then finally he sends his son and they do the same. Paul tells us in verse 15 they are not pleasing to God. <clears throat> now, let me ask you did the Jews have a zeal? They certainly had a zeal, right? They had a zeal. And, and Romans chapter 10 says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So they certainly had a zeal. They certainly were sincere in what they were doing. When they cried out, Crucify, crucify, they were sincere. They really thought that this was threatening the nation because of the hardness of their hearts. Consider the, with the 9-11 uh, anniversary, the Muslims who went for years of training to, to become pilots and this whole plan of, of taking airplanes and targeting them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and who knows where else, the White House, the Capitol perhaps. They were very sincere in what they were doing, very patient in what they were doing. So they have a zeal that it's without knowledge, without faith in Christ, it is impossible to please God. And then Paul says, and they drove us out, in verse 15. Yeah, he killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and they drove us out. Now that word only occurs here in the New Testament, and it could mean to, to be driven out, but it also can mean to be persecuted severely. And I like that translation better, and I'm not sure why it's not translated like this in our Bibles, but the idea here is that the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus, who killed the prophets, and even likely tried to kill Paul, and persecuted him severely, and drove him out, I think fits better. So the Jews, incredibly privileged people, had the oracles of God, all these privileges right there, and yet the hardness of their heart, they continue to reject and to kill the prophets and even Jesus Christ. You too, though, are a privileged people, living here in America, the 21st century, able to come to a public worship service like this, to hear the word of God is a wonderful privilege. I hope that you trust, I, ho- I hope and trust that you think so. You own one of these, more than likely. If it's not with you tonight, you have one in your house. You have the oracles of God right here. You have, and you own a Bible. You hear the word of God proclaimed. And children, you're privileged. Many of us did not grow up in a Christian home. But you are privileged because mommy and daddy love you so much and they instruct you and they teach you from the word of God. That's incredible privilege. There's some here that were brought up in Christian homes, and I think they'll testify. That's an incredible privilege. Don't look upon that as lightly. 
if you're visiting with us, it's a privilege to have you here. It's a privilege to be here. Perhaps you haven't yet believed in Jesus Christ. Maybe God is speaking to you even from this very message as we see the two responses, one of, re- one of rejecting the Word of God and receiving the Word of God. So, moving on to verse 16. We saw verse 15. The Jews, well, killed the Lord Jesus, the prophets. They're certainly not pleasing to God, hostile to man, very strong words. Verse 16, he says, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Very quickly, Paul continues his indictment here against the Jews. They opposed the preaching of the Word of God. They certainly did their best to hinder the message, right? That's what Paul says, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, being driven out prematurely, pushing him on to the next town, beating him, locking him up, putting him in jail. The same thing with Peter earlier, right? These types of things. They certainly hindered. They, they tried to hinder so that the Gentiles might be saved here. The idea of being redeemed and being reconciled to God. <clears throat> this is a pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts. And in chapter 5, just one example, <clears throat> Peter is speaking before the religious leaders of the day. He's speaking about the demands of Christ. He even goes so far as to say Israel needs to ask for forgiveness for their sins of putting to death the Lord of glory. And this is what they said. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they intended to kill them. They don't want to hear that. They want to squash that message. It brings conviction. They don't want to hear that. So Paul essentially charges the Jews with this crime that with regard to the salvation of the Gentiles, they had this envy and they wanted to squash it. And then the end of verse 16, the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. You see, while the Thessalonians had demonstrated this perseverance and this reception of the message, a perseverance in suffering, the Jews, however, face a completely different end. Uh, one of final eternal punishment. Paul is saying that the Jews here, these who oppose the message, these who oppose Christ, are not worthy to be thought of as worshipers of God. This is why, why the punishment of the wicked is often delayed here. This is God's wrath, the judgment of God. And I think it's both now and in the future here, very clearly. Their sins are not yet fully ripe, that you might think of it. In Genesis 15:16, it speaks of the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Hardness of heart, not believing the gospel, is leading them to damnation, an utterly hopeless state. John 3:36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
passage parallels Romans 1 as well. So there's a sense in which the wrath, a sense, a sense in which the wrath of God is already abiding on the unbeliever that has rejected the message, has rejected Christ. The wrath of God is upon that person. And of course, there's a future aspect as well. And that will come in the last day. So Paul's denunciation of his own nation is unparalleled here anywhere else in Scripture. And these two verses, some of the strongest language we have that Paul uses against the Jews very strongly. Even in Romans, he speaks to them with a much softer tone. Let me ask you, have you been delivered from God's wrath? In chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The only way we can be rescued from wrath is trusting in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. So in conclusion, very briefly, we see these two contrasting responses to the Gospel. One of a welcome reception, and that's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That's a transforming work of God. And then one of a wicked rejection, a stiff-necked rejection. Let me ask you, who are God's chosen people today? I've already hinted that we're the privileged ones, really, today. The Jews were privileged previously. We are the privileged ones. Who are the chosen ones? It is us. It is Gentile believers here that are grafted in as the Jews were rejected. We are God's chosen nation. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 Probably the clearest passage is Galatians 3. We don't have time to go there. But we are children of Abraham and heirs according to his promise. We are the Israel of God. We are those who are privileged if you're trusting Christ. So let me ask you, if you received the word of God, do you willingly endure suffering for Christ's sake? I don't mean do you inflict yourself with some kind of pain but are you one that cringes with your tail between your legs, as it were, and runs the other way when a situation just might arise of confrontation to stand up for your faith? How this should embolden us. This emboldened Paul, that he had this precious gospel message, this treasure in earthen vessels. This should give us great boldness as we go out into that world, as we would speak to a lost and dying world all around us and be willing to suffer in whatever way the Lord may have for us. Your willingness to suffer is proof that you are His child. Is the Word of God working in you? Are you growing in your sanctification? Are you being made more holy? Are you being conformed into the image of Christ? If you're not front-sliding, you're back-sliding. And how I pray that each year is front-sliding. And if you've not trusted Christ, I pray that today would be the day that you would receive it by faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the clear teaching of your holy word. We thank you that you have given us your law. We thank you for how even the the songs and the scripture readings have tied in with this message, O Lord. Lord, how I pray for each here. I pray that as your people we would grow 
and grace, that you would make us more and more holy, that you would prepare us for that eternal kingdom that we long for. We long to see Jesus face to face. And Lord, if there be any here who do not know him, we pray that you would do that supernatural work of opening up the heart. We pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to do is 